Hi, you're listening to JJ Gilmore on Follow Your Dream podcast with the good man, Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Miles Copeland, a renowned music and entertainment executive and the former manager of the police. His brother is Stuart Copeland, the band's drummer. He later managed Sting's musical and acting career, and in 1979, he founded IRS Records, producing bands like R.E.M., The Bangles, The Go-Go's, and many others. Miles was at the center of the British prog rock and punk rock scenes in the late 60s and 70s, and he spent over 30 years working with artists who have dominated the charts in the U.S., the U.K., and across the world. And you know that in every episode, I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I've chosen the song Constable on Patrol from the album East Side Sessions by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, Miles managed the police. And guess what? A constable is a policeman. So it's a perfect match. So, Miles Copeland, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. How do you do? That's quite a build-up. I didn't actually handle Sting's acting career, by the way. Uh-oh. Hey, listen, you got to correct your biography then. Oh, well, somebody put that in there. I didn't do that. I did the music, and, you know, I left the film stuff to him. I see. Well, let's talk about that for a second. I got other stuff to talk about, but I mean, Sting is one of the greatest artists in the world. You represented the police. I've seen all the videos about getting started when they were over in London. Tell us your portion of the story. How did you get involved with the band? Well, my brother formed the group, actually. So, you know, he found Sting. And uh, I ended up managing the police, helping them out in the early days of, you know, it was a crazy. I, I was living in London. Stuart was living in London. Sting, obviously, is English. And, uh, you know, the whole punk thing was happening. And nobody in England paid any attention to it, really, in, in the music business. It was only the press and, you know, the Sex Pistols got all over the front pages of all the newspapers and everything. But the music business basically denied that this all, all was all happening. So you'd pick up the local music rags and there would be nothing really about the punks. And I decided, you know, I think there's something going on here. And this is a new generation wanting to put forward their ideas and have their heroes. So I kind of threw my lot in with them. And uh, Stuart sort of got into the same thing. Sting came down to London, joined and formed this group. I mean, he wasn't really a punk. He was more of a jazz player, basically. He, He's a very accomplished musician, you know. He was a teacher, wasn't he, before he became a musician? Yeah, he's always been an intellectual. He reads books. Uh, he knows what's going on. And he knew that there were more than three chords, you know, which is more than most <laughs> of the punks knew. So 
you know, I couldn't say necessarily that, you know, Sting was really a punk, but he certainly liked the energy of it, just like I did and Stewart did. There was the energy, there was something happening. You know, there were no rules, basically. You could kind of set your own course. And that was really quite exciting. So that's really what we did, basically. We set our own course. And at one point, I decided to record the group. And, um, you know, Sting wrote some songs for it. And he thought, as did everybody else, basically, I was looking for, you know, three-chord punk music. And I had to really push them to release, you know, to play me Roxanne, which, of course, was not really very punk, let's face it. You know, I mean, it was a very, it was a, it was a love song, a, you know, a, a ballad, basically. But I heard that song and I thought, you know what, that song will change our lives. And that's what I said to the group. And next thing you know, they, they look at me like I had two heads thinking, you like that? <laughs> and I said, it's going to change our lives. And I went the next day and got them a deal with A&M Records, which was a very prestigious record company. And that really started the ball rolling. By this time, Andy Summers was in the band, I assume. Am I correct? Yeah, Andy joined, you know, I mean, it, it originally had formed, Stewart formed the group and was really pushing it to be a punk group. So the first guitar player he had was looked the part, but really couldn't play as many chords as Sting could write, basically. And it wasn't until Andy joined that Sting could basically bring forward songs that were a little bit more complex. So Andy had a major role to play in effect by just being able to play what Sting could write. And then of course Sting wrote the hits and bingo, we had, you know, a year or two later, we were number one in the charts in England and around the world. And then a few years after that, number one in America. So, you know, it was a exciting time and people credited us with breaking the rules because nobody really considered the police uh, a group that was going to happen. I mean, I, I had trouble getting a record deal. Really? It wasn't easy. We got written off just like the punks did. You know, it seems like every time that somebody comes around with something different, you got to go through the motions of trying to get people to dig that, right? Think about the fact that the Beatles got rejected by 17 record labels. How impossible is that? Yeah, I mean, our story was pretty much the same thing, you know. And it really, when you think about it, you know, and, and I say this in the book, you know, that that really... I didn't consider myself a particular genius in music or whatever, but I could recognize the fact that there was something happening. I mean, it was pretty obvious, I thought. But the music business turned their noses up. They brought out the rule book. You know, well, we can't do this because of so-and-so. Well, why not? You know, but nobody really answered that question. So, and I've seen that all through, the, through my life, really, is that I guess my biggest hits were ones which were denied by the record company. Yeah, because... Record companies want yesterday's music. That's the problem. Yeah. I mean, Desert Rose was turned down by the, the record company because it had an Arab singer on it, and he, we didn't understand what he was saying.
the Bengals walk like an Egyptian was rejected as a single. They said, oh, it's too quirky. And, you know, you go down the list and, and you find out that your, your biggest hits were ones that everybody said couldn't happen. All right. I got to ask this question because I heard a rumor that they named the band The Police because of the whole background of your family. Am I correct about that? Well, that might have had something to do with it. All right. Hold on. Explain to everybody who your father was and your mother, that whole side of your family. Well, my father was one of the founders of the CIA, and we sort of grew up overseas, and we had always been sort of connected in one way or another with the sort of institutions of government, you know, maybe the uh, the ones that involved themselves in skullduggery and overthrowing governments and that sort of thing, you know. So the police has a double meaning, really. It's like when you get into trouble, the first people you want to call are the police, but then again, if you're driving a car and the police pull you over, the last thing you want to see is a policeman. So it it, it kind of you love them and you hate them at the same time. And I think that's sort of what Stewart was going for. But when you talk to Stewart, he'll say, well, by calling the band the police, it meant that there were cars all over the world driving around with the name of my band on them. Now, I heard that your mother was also in British intelligence. Is that true? Yeah, that's how they met, really. My father was in OSS during the war, which was the precursor to the CIA. And my mother was an SOE, which was the British intelligence, formed by Churchill himself. And they met, obviously. And I was, you know, us children were the result. All right. Well, I assume that one was not investigating the other. Am I correct? Hopefully not. <laughs> and I understand as well that you lived around in different places, including the Middle East, and that you speak fluent Arabic. Am I correct? Well, I used to be fluent. Well, I can't really claim that anymore. But, you know, I can sort of bluff my... If you don't speak Arabic, I sound pretty good. If you do speak Arabic, well, I'm, I'm a bit of a phony. All right. Are you at least impressed by the due diligence that I do on this podcast, huh? Yes, I'm very impressed. <laughs> All right. So you're managing the police. You've made them into a household name. And by the way, they're one of my favorite bands of all time. It's hard for me to believe that anybody that listened to that music at the beginning did not get turned on by it. But that's the way of the music business. As we've said, anything that's new takes a while for somebody to finally recognize it. So tell us what happened after that. You, you built them up into one of the biggest bands in the world. Where did it go after that? Well, at one point, you know, I think in, in, you know, after we had been at number one and you've been doing it for five years or so, we played all around the world. We'd opened up countries that never had rock and roll. We were the first rock and roll group to ever play India. And, you know, I think at some point Sting said, you know, I want to now do my thing and push my songs and do it my way and not be tied to a band anymore. So, so then the next period was Sting doing his thing. Stuart went off and did his thing as well. Andy did, you know, they all went off and did their thing, basically. And I was doing IRS records. I had the Go-Go's and the Bangles and R.E.M. and, you know, General Public and Concrete Blonde and so-and-so, Wall of Voodoo and whatever. And I was, I had a record company, so I was pretty involved. I was very involved in Sting, obviously, and helping Stuart doing what he was doing in soundtracks or whatever. But, at, you know, at one point, a lot of the members of the band who are particularly, I mean, they're all educated guys. You know, these are these are people that have more than just they're just a rock and roll band, you know. So they went off to do their own thing. And Sting brought in some of the top players ever when he did his solo stuff. 
So, you know, it was a natural progression, really, you know. And as I say in the book, you know, and, and I started IRS Records as a revolution, basically. Well, we sort of ended up back where we started. You know, we ended up selling to EMI and we became the establishment. Everybody kind of woke up to what we were doing. And I realized that, you know, that's sort of the arc that, you know, a, an entrepreneur goes through. You start off being a revolutionary and you end up just like the people you left. But you, now you're in a different generation, you know. So the bands that you signed or the artists that you signed when you did IRS records, were they also rejected by the majors at that time? Is that how they came with you? Or was it just your ear for how great they were? Yeah, I mean, I I went and I, I would look at a band and I would simply be honest with myself, basically. I saw the Go-Go's. I thought, wow, I love this group. They're great, you know. But meanwhile, the music business rejected them because they were all women. There had never been a number one album ever by a women group, you know. So they were turned down by everybody. And I went in and I said, look, I'll sign you. And when I told them I would sign them, their manager went around to every other record company that they'd already visited and said, look, we have an offer from IRS Records. Will you sign us now? They were still turned down. So they came back to IRS Records and we signed them for some paltry deal, you know, as the maximum I could come up with. Uh, to me, it was an expensive deal, but to them, it was much less than they wanted. But it was sort of like, you know, as Charlotte Caffey says, you know, that we were sort of in the same situation they were. We were rejected, they were rejected, and together we fought the world and we won. And they ended up with the first girl group number one album ever, you know, and it still retains that title. Actually, it's the first girl group in America that ever had a number one album on Billboard. I mean, there are plenty of number one singles and all that, but they're never a number one album. And that single of theirs, Walk Like an Egyptian. That was the Bangles. I'm sorry, that was the Bangles. But that song was so quirky, and yet it worked. And the video is still out there. It's still getting thousands and thousands of views. I mean, it just shows that you, you, you were attuned to where the music was at that point. You know, I, I sort of looked at myself and thought, you know, what was it? Was I really that good? You know, and the reality was that I just I, I, I actually say this to friends. I said, look, we're all A&R people. We all drive down the highway. And if we don't like a song, we change channel. You know, well, that's an A&R decision, you know. And all I did, I listened to Walk Like an Egyptian. I thought, well, that's a hit. I listened to Desert Rose, the Sting Road. I said, that's a hit. And I had people say to me, for instance, on Desert Rose. I would say to people, what's your favorite song on the Sting album? And they would say, well, it's Desert Rose. And I'd say, well, that's the next single then. Oh, no, no, it can't be the next single because, and then they would give me all the rules, you know. So, and the same thing happened with, with Walk Like an Egyptian. And I was turned down by everybody. And it was only because I cajoled the Sony in, in, in London to release the single that it just took off. America had already refused to release it because it wasn't written by Prince. You know, and it, it just goes to show that, you know, I didn't think that I had any particular ability beyond someone else. 
except that I was honest with myself. I like that song, so why can't it be a hit? Well, I think you're uh, underplaying your role in all of this because, look, somebody that has good ears in the business is always going to find something that others will not find. And look, back in the 60s and 70s, which was my heyday when I was coming of age musically, I kind of knew every single time I heard a song, whether it was a hit or not. If I fast forward to today, I wouldn't have a clue what's a hit because I'm not into the music that's being played today. You were in a certain era and you knew when you listened if it was going to be a hit and it turned out to be a hit. Good for you. Well, thank you. I mean, I, 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 I would differ in a sense. If I heard a song today that I thought was really great, I would imagine it would be a hit, but I don't really listen to music like I used to. So it, it, it maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But I, all I can say is that I think a lot of people know the public knows what they like and what they don't like. It's really, will they admit it to themselves? Will they, will they make the next step? Which okay. You know what? I heard that song. I like it. It's fantastic. I'm willing to put some money down on it. When, when it comes to putting money down, it's like, Oh, Oh, uh, no, I don't know anything. But wait a minute. You just chose the song. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. As you know by now, I'm a musician, too. I've released 13 acclaimed albums, including a Billboard number 1, and I've had millions of video views and streams. I infuse my music into the podcast in several ways. In each episode, I feature one of my songs underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. I also regularly write and record new music, and I release all of my new music via the podcast to my audience consisting of thousands of listeners from 200 countries. It's like I'm performing a concert on a worldwide basis. If you haven't done so yet, I invite you to check out all of my music and my band, Project Grand Slam, by going to the band's website, projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com. You can also find all of our videos on YouTube, and you can stream our music on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming services. By the way, the song you're hearing underneath my voice right now is called Metro Shuffle. It's from the Project Grand Slam album, The PGS Experience, and it features the great Mindy Abair on saxophone. It's become my go-to theme song for the podcast. As always, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and to my music, and we'll see you in the next episode. What's your view, though, on the status of the music industry? Because, you know, nobody's really buying music anymore. Everything is streaming and it's singles, it's not albums. What's your view on all of that? Do you think it's a good situation or not? Well, I think what's interesting is that groups that probably wouldn't have gotten discovered are getting discovered. 
the ways of making money have changed. But the essence of the music business and the entertainment business in general and many other businesses as well is there's one essence that has never changed. And that is, if people don't know you exist, you don't exist. And that works for a can of beans. It works for a rock and roll band. It works for anything. So the first job is to get noticed. And whether you have to wear funny clothes or do wild things or do crazy stuff or whatever it is, but the first job is to get noticed. Then, secondly, it's what you're delivering any good or not. And then the public will decide. But the first job is to get noticed, which is why so many, I mean, it's why Donald Trump won. He got noticed, you know. He he said crazy stuff. He got noticed. Kiss painted their faces. They got noticed. You know, the Beatles had long hair. They got noticed. You know, the, the police, they all dyed their hair blonde. They got noticed, you know. And, and, it's, and in the case of the police, it really took just one guy on the radio station to believe and to bang the record. And then that got other people involved and other people involved and off you go. So sometimes it, 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 it can literally be down to one journalist, one DJ, one whatever that can make, that can actually, that believes wholeheartedly and fights for something and can make it happen. And in my case, as a manager, I think that, you know, if, if I said anything about myself and wanted to wave my own flag, I would say, well, I believed and I fought, you know, and I was a lot of times the lone wolf out there, the only one who believed. You know, it's interesting. I've had a lot of guys that were big artists in the 1960s on this podcast, and so many of them had a variation on what you just said. There was one disc jockey, one guy in whatever location it might have been that got behind the record. And that's what started everything. In fact, in several instances, that, that disc jockey turned the record over because what the record company thought was going to be the A side turned out not to be the A side. It was the other side that everybody was interested in. So I'm fascinated by the fact that you're telling me the police kind of got started on their road to stardom in the same way. Yeah. I mean, it was really a DJ in, in Boston called Oedipus, who was on some lowly little Mickey Mouse station at MIT College Station. And he heard the group. And uh, actually, it, it leads me to a story when the people say, well, what was the biggest show? What's the most important show you ever did? And I would say, well, you know, it was a show in, in northern New York to four people. And people go, but wait, wait, what about Shea Stadium at 80,000? You know, no, no, no. The most important show we ever did was to four people. One of those four people was a DJ. It was Oedipus. And he started playing Roxanne. He was so enamored with the group that he went back to his radio station and he displayed incessantly Roxanne. And then other stations picked up on it and picked up on it. And next thing you know, it becomes a, a, a regional hit. And that got the notice of AM Records. And then that, that started the ball rolling. So literally, it was down to one DJ. That's a terrific story. You know, what it reminds me of, there was a time just before Woodstock, also upstate New York, where somebody invited me to go hear a band that was playing in a trailer. And maybe there were five people in the place. It was Jethro Tull. And Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull put on a show for two hours as if they were playing at Madison Square Garden or Shea Stadium. And I never forgot that because as a musician, you always want to put out 100% every single time you play, no matter how many people are in the audience. It sounds to me like the police did just that 
when they played for those four people. And I, I remember it distinctly. I, I can't remember if it was Sting or Stewart said it, but they came and they said, look, we, we went into that show. We looked, we looked out at the audience and there was only four people. And we said, you know, those four people don't know who the hell we are, but they bought tickets anyway. So let's give them the best show we can. And they went out and they just played and he killed just like it was Shea Stadium. And I think that's what must have impressed Oedipus. And he went home and he started playing that record. So in, in reality, what that really was the show that changed the game. It was four people. It just so happened that one person was important. So I would say to any prospective group, you know, don't worry about the size of the audience. Worry about who's there. There you go. All right. Tell us a little bit about your memoir. I know you put everything down during the pandemic. So tell everybody about that. Well, I, I went back and, and I just thought, well, you know, and I've always talked about doing a book of some sort, you know, and putting stuff down and I was stuck at home. Well, what am I going to do? You know, so I just started writing. And before I knew it, you know, a couple of months later, I'd written a book, you know, and it had all the bands. And I started going back to some of those old bands and finding some of the people that I talked to, you know, and Andy Powell from Wishbone Ash, you know, the all the different groups that I talked to, Jules Holland and um, Johnette Napolitano from Concrete Blonde and the guys from Dada and, you know, fashion and all these different bands that I, you know, had worked with and the Go-Go's, of course. And it kind of refreshed my memory as to what was, you know, some of those, those, those points. And I also talked to a lot of the staff that I had, you know, who all went on, most of them went on to become big honchos in the music business. It was, you know, it was quite gratifying, but it really had me relive my my past in a way, which was kind of interesting. And I realized that I'd forgotten a lot of things and I'd remembered a lot of things. And so the book helped me remind me of some of the things that I had, had done. And, and it also made me understand that sometimes it really was the mistakes that I learned from more than the successes and that they're both valid, you know, but the main thing is if you make a mistake, pick yourself up and keep on fighting. You know, that was that was really the message. Can't agree any more with that. We have been speaking here with Miles Copeland, a uh, renowned music executive, the former manager of the police and Sting, and the founder of IRS Records. Miles, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been absolutely terrific. Happy to be here. Good luck with your shows. And now we're going to listen to that song that started off the podcast. It's my song called Constable on Patrol. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com.
There's a constable of 